You're listening to The Martial Brain, the podcast that explores the intersection between the martial arts, science, critical thinking, skepticism, and that wacky organ that floats inside our skulls in a pool of cerebral spinal fluid, making life unpredictably inspiring, infuriating, and sometimes just batshit crazy. I'm Jeff Westfall for The Martial Brain. The Forgotten War The Philippines The USA War Colonialism and the Martial Arts Part 14 There's a healthy dose of good old American cultural chauvinism running through this part of the story. You know, the attitude which we inherited from our European forebears that there's something distasteful, icky, and just plain wrong about the way other people do things, especially people who don't look like us. It's also what has given us the reputation of being the ugly Americans, as Mark Twain coined it, when we travel abroad. Last time, I told you about what happened in the Philippine town of Balangiga, on the island of Samar, on the morning of September 28, 1901. To hear the outraged American newspapers of the day describe it, it was a massacre of American troops by Filipino barbarians to be compared with the massacre at the Little Bighorn. To those few Filipinos still fighting for their independence, it was a battle against American occupiers that started out well but ended with both sides retreating. Now, by the time the war would see an end, there would be a disturbing and disgusting number of atrocities committed by each side. When Americans were dishing out inhumane treatment, they usually did it with firearms. The Filipinos seldom had enough firearms to equip even half of their troops. That means they often fought a 20th century war with swords. Think about that. You're fighting a war against invaders who are, as individual human animals, nearly always bigger than you. Often, much bigger. They are lavishly equipped with the tools of, and supplies necessary for, modern warfare. All manufactured and supplied by the fastest-growing industrial economy on the planet. Picture an army of NFL linebackers and linemen, armed, equipped, and trained like modern Navy SEALs, while you and your comrades are average-size Americans, are starving, and carrying machetes. When you go up against one of these guys and all you have is a blade, and you somehow manage to win, what is left of that giant opponent is probably going to look bloody and ugly. At Balangiga, the local Filipino men were enraged by the treatment of them and their families by the American occupiers. They developed a plan to catch the Americans with their pants down. The plan worked. The American survivors retreated from Balangiga, carrying their wounded in some Filipino canoes to an American garrison on the nearby island of Leyte. That garrison was under the command of U.S. Army Captain Edwin Bookmiller. Now something was mentioned about Captain Bookmiller in nearly every source in my research, something I frequently saw mentioned in reference to a lot of American military figures from the Philippine-American War. 
that something was hatred, a very specific hatred. Bookmiller hated Filipinos, even before Balangiga. I was chilled by how many sources from the time of the war took the trouble in print to mention how much this or that member of the U.S. military hated Filipinos. Now, I could understand this if they had invaded us. But in any case, the very next day, Captain Bookmiller took the American survivors from Company C, along with half a hundred of his own men, back to Balangiga. The bodies of the Americans that they found there were indeed bloody and ugly. They secured the deserted town, and then Captain Bookmiller ordered, quote, all Filipinos in the area to be rounded up, unquote. Now, I couldn't, in my research, find out what size of an area this scouring of the countryside for locals was meant to cover, and I also couldn't find out if the Filipinos rounded up included women or children. But, once several dozen Filipino people were gathered at Balangiga, Captain Bookmiller allowed the surviving soldiers from Company C to execute all of them. While this was happening, the other American soldiers burned the town to the ground. Captain Bookmiller, with the flaming buildings as a backdrop, famously uttered a biblical quotation, They have sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. Keep in mind that American press coverage of the Philippines in September of 1901, before Balangiga, reflected public fatigue with the war. President Aguinaldo had been captured by the Americans. In the majority of the islands, the military action had ceased. More U.S. reporters were covering congressional investigations into American conduct in the war than were covering what seemed to be the final echoes of real combat. But Balangiga changed all that. The American press quickly labeled it the Balangiga Massacre. The fatigue of the American public turned to fury, very similar to that ignited by the attacks of 9-11 in 2001. Now this is where the American cultural chauvinism that I mentioned at the top comes in. The rage of Americans after September 11th, 2001, which by the way happened two weeks after the 100th anniversary of Balangiga, was completely understandable. I was pretty damned outraged myself. But the reaction of the American press and public to the events at Balangiga is difficult for me to share. This was an act of war, directed at soldiers, not a terrorist attack on civilians. To many Americans, though, the Filipino attack on the sleepy, unarmed American troops at Balangiga somehow violated the rules of fair play. And they used swords. Ew. Civilized white militaries met honorably on the field of battle and shot at each other. These tiny brown-skinned Filipinos had the audacity to continue fighting back when it was obvious that they couldn't drive the United States out of their home islands, and they were attempting it with medieval weaponry. While I personally might find this brave and admirable, especially in the act of defending your homeland, the American press labeled the Filipino fighters at Balangiga savages warlike barbarians, obviously in need of being brought under control by civilized white people. President Theodore Roosevelt reacted immediately, ordering the American general in charge of military affairs in the Philippines, Major General Adna Chaffee, to adopt, quote, 
in no unmistakable terms the most stern measures to pacify Samar, unquote, and to do so at once. Chaffee, embarrassed and infuriated, informed his senior officers that the Filipino people were to be given, quote, the bayonet rule, unquote, for years to come. He then figuratively turned and dropped this massive load of shit on his subordinate, General Jacob Hurd Smith, with instructions to do whatever was necessary to pacify the island of Samar. It was made clear that he would be given whatever resources he required to do this. Now, General Smith was a piece of work. His nickname in the army was Howling Jake. At first blush, that sounds pretty badass. But he didn't get the nickname from any habit of battle rage. No, it was from the way he ranted at his subordinates. His default setting when issuing orders was to cuss and berate those beneath him in rank. His military career, which stretched back to before the Civil War, reads like a police blotter of fraud, malfeasance, and misuse of military funds. He had powerful connections, and thus had survived more than one court-martial. Now, here in the Philippines, he was tasked with bringing peace to the island of Samar. Howling Jake, you guessed it, hated the Philippines and its people. He was quoted as saying that fighting the Filipinos was, quote, worse than fighting the goddamned Indians, unquote. He was put in charge of what was called the 6th Separate Brigade, consisting of a large number of U.S. Army grunts, plus a battalion of U.S. Marines under the command of Major Littleton Waller. General Smith issued orders known to history as Circular No. 6. In it, he declares, quote, I want no prisoners. I wish you to kill and burn. The more you kill and burn, the better it will please me. I want all persons killed who are capable of bearing arms in actual hostilities against the United States. Unquote. The Marine commander, Major Waller, realizing the implications of these orders, asked for clarification. Quote, I would like to know the limit of age to respect, sir. End quote. Smith's reply chilled Waller to the bone. Quote, Ten years. Unquote. Waller once more asked for clarification. Quote, Persons of ten years and older are those designated as being capable of bearing arms? Unquote. Smith confirmed these horrifying instructions with a simple, Yes. Now keep in mind that General Vicente Lucban, the commander of Filipino forces on Samar fighting the Americans, was hiding in the jungle, ostensibly beyond reach. But his reach extended to all the Filipino people on the island, to whom he had made it bloodily clear that assisting the Americans in any way would result in violent death for the culprit and his family. I would guess that most of the people of Samar simply wanted to be left out of whatever was left of this war. But General Lukban, and now the Americans, it seemed, would have none of it. For the actions of several hundred Filipinos in one small southern coastal town, the entire island of Samar, which is huge, with a population of several hundred thousand, was about to pay a very bloody price.
the Americans cut off all shipments of food and supplies to the island. All who lived there were to be punished, whether they were guilty of supporting the freedom fighters or not. Now, to his credit, Major Waller took the time with his men to explain that General Smith was mostly bluster and that they were to follow the rules and laws of warfare. But to his shame, his standards of humanity to the Filipinos were to go downhill from there. Littleton Waller was in his 40s, a career Marine who had already seen plenty of action in small engagements around the world. Do you remember in an earlier episode I described for you the one-sided naval battle three years before between the American fleet off of Cuba and the Spanish fleet that attempted to escape from Santiago Harbor? Yes, it was an outrageous naval ass-kicking. The entire Spanish fleet was utterly destroyed and the American fleet took zero significant damage or injury. Well, Major Waller had been in command of the Marine Detachment on board the battleship USS Indiana at that battle. He and his men served with distinction in the battle, operating as gunners and disabling several enemy vessels. But their real heroism came when the captain of the Indiana ordered Major Waller and his men to board whale boats and rescue as many of the hundreds of Spanish sailors that were floating in the burning waters as was possible. Men who had already fought a battle, braved choppy waters full of dangerous wreckage, and plucked prisoners from the water. They nosed their whaleboats up to wrecked warship hulks, whose captains had purposely run them aground, and rescued Spanish sailors before fire worked its way to the munitions magazines. After the war, Major Waller won a medal for his actions that day. Two years after that, and a year before the events at Balangiga, he led a contingent of Marines to the Chinese city of Tianjin, where a whole bunch of foreign nationals were besieged by the Chinese rebels known as the Boxers. Among those foreign nationals was a young mining engineer and future U.S. president, Herbert Hoover. During the battle, Hoover had actually acted as a guide for Waller and his Marines. Yet once more, Waller and his men had served with distinction. Now he was tasked with commanding the spearhead unit in the action that came to be known as the Samar Campaign. While the army troops were busy all around the coast of the island, burning villages, destroying crops, slaughtering livestock, gathering intelligence, and killing anyone they didn't like the looks of, the Marines would have a more specific job. Kill or capture General Lukban. Cut off the head of the snake. In particular, the Marines were to concentrate their efforts on the southern coast of the island. Once having arrived on the island, Major Waller and his men began patrolling inland and gathering intelligence. After a week, he managed to bring a body of insurrectos to battle on the Sohotan River, defeating them soundly. As a result of this coastal campaign by the Marines, General Lukban pulled up stakes and moved his headquarters and his troops further north along the Sohotan River, deeper into the jungle and away from the Marines to a previously constructed and fortified position on the Sohotan Cliffs. Now, Filipinos who had seen this facility told the Marines that it was nearly impregnable. Waller came up with an attack plan, which he launched in the middle of November. And I'll tell you the results of his attack next time. Anyway, that's what I think. But I could be wrong. 
Let me know what you think, and check out old episodes of the Martial Brain Podcast at my website, rpmartialarts.com. I'm Jeff Westfall for the Martial Brain. The Martial Brain is produced by Raging Squirrel Productions in association with the Rising Phoenix Martial Arts Academy. If you like the podcast and would like to help it grow, go to iTunes or Stitcher and give it an honest rating and review. Contact me with questions about the Martial Brain or about the Rising Phoenix Academy at my website, rpmartialarts.com.